Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, postponed events, canceled trips, disrupted business, insurance, and coronavirus collide. Lindsay Kassoff, in-house counsel for the Muscular Dystrophy Association and member of the City Bar's Health Law Committee, moderates a discussion with insurance industry legal experts, including several on the City Bar's Insurance Law Committee. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Lindsay Kassoff. Welcome to the first remote Zoom New York City Bar Association podcast. I'm Lindsay Kassoff, in-house counsel for Muscular Dystrophy Association and member of the Health Law Committee. Like many nonprofits, COVID-19 is causing a major disruption in our revenue stream because we are unable to hold traditional in-person fundraising events. Our venue partners and service providers are likewise affected. The economic impact on the events industry is staggering. The U.S. Travel Association estimates a $910 billion loss on travel alone, seven times the losses after 9-11. So I've been thinking a lot about allocating the burden of those losses and how insurance factors into the equation. Today, April 3, 2020, we will dive into coronavirus, canceled events, and insurance coverage with a great panel of distinguished attorneys who are either members of the Insurance Law Committee or referred by a committee member. We have Alan Borst, a New York attorney and insurance professional with experience in the management and professional liability industry. Anthony Crawford, an associate in the insurance coverage group with Reed Smith, serving a wide array of clients ranging from banking and financial institutions to religious organizations. Fred Pomerantz, an AM Best Recommended Insurance Counsel with 40 years of industry experience. Gary Seversky, a partner at O'Melveny. He represents clients in all types of complex commercial cases with a special focus on disputes involving insurance coverage, distressed debt investments, and various sophisticated securities and Gary's colleague, Janine Panchak-Berry, an associate at O'Melveny, focusing on complex litigation and transactions involving insurance and environmental law. On to the discussion. Think of a recently canceled event due to COVID-19. The economically affected parties would fall into three groups, event attendees, the promoters or sponsors of the event, and the vendors in particular venues that provide services for the event. For an attendee, when an event is canceled, usually hotels and rental cars are cancelable 24 or 48 hours in advance, so that's probably not an issue, but the attendees are often left with an airfare that is non-refundable, along with registration fees that may or may not be refundable by the organizer. Fred, what consumer-level insurance could an attendee recover his losses from? Well, there are many... Um many different um, elements of travel insurance that would help uh, the, the attendee acquire uh, some relief. And travel insurance is the subject of my discussion. Uh, so I'd like to um, start with um, the question of whether pandemics and epidemics are excluded from standard trip cancellation insurance policies. Some insurance companies explicitly state that epidemics and pandemics are excluded reasons for canceling a trip. Others use the term act of God, which is a broader uh, exclusion. Um, and, and why is this? Because 
pandemics are hard to evaluate in terms of risk and cost. Um, insurance exists to cover liabilities where the risk can be assessed. Pandemics or epidemics tend to be extremely unpredictable and have a very broad geographic impact. As a result, insurers really lack the proper tools and underwriting guidelines to properly place the risk. According to Allianz Global Assistance, a, a well-known travel insurance provider, trip cancellations and interruptions due to known foreseeable or expected events, epidemics, or fear of travel due to such known events are generally not covered in trip insurance, trip cancellation insurance. COVID-19 is a known event, meaning it is not likely that traditional travel insurance policies with trip cancellation will cover changes in plans or cancellation for that reason. So it's very important to review your policy to find out which exclusions apply before you purchase that policy. Fred, I have yeah. a question. Mm -hmm. So you said COVID-19 is a known event. That's now. So right. if someone had planned their trip before this was a pandemic, um, I, I assume that wouldn't apply. It wouldn't unless the, the individual had purchased cancellation for any reason insurance, which is something I will discuss in, in, uh, in a little while. Um, at this moment, by the way, it is almost impossible to purchase an ordinary trip cancellation policy now, uh, much less purchase cancel for any reason coverage. And until less than a month ago, the New York Insurance Department did not view cancellation for any reason as insurance because there is no underlying fortuitous risk. Now, now what is canceled for any reason coverage and, and how does it differ from trip cancellation? The only way to be compensated when you need to change or cancel your trip to avoid a high-risk area during a viral outbreak is by, by purchasing a cancel for any reason benefit as a supplement to your travel insurance policy. The basic travel trip cancellation policy averages four to 10% of the estimated costs of a trip. In most instances, an average of 50% is the surcharge for cancellation for any reason. Now, I, I just want to briefly talk about how past epidemics or pandemics inform us as to the travel industry's reaction to claims under travel insurance policies. A typical standard travel policy does not cover a traveler's decision to cancel due to fear or other anxiety-induced refusal to visit areas hit with viral epidemics such as the coronavirus. Zika, which was the mosquito-borne virus that made headlines in 2016, uh, or the SARS coronavirus scare in 2003, which began in China and later infected hundreds of Canadians and scared off countless tourists in the Toronto area. Standard travel insurance policies did not then and do not now provide for cancellation coverage for government-imposed travel advisories or bans either. 
Now, we come to the question of whether all states permit sales of cancellation for any reason insurance. And the answer there is really yes and no. There is an NAIC model, 632 Travel Insurance Model Act, which has been adopted in full by only six states to date, Arkansas, Maryland, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, Texas, and Virginia. Fred, just one, one question. What is NISC? NAIC is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which is not a regulator itself, but it is an organization which um, puts together um, with the help of uh, all of the insurance departments and industry model laws covering various aspects of insurance regulation. So, so it's a standards organization? Standards organization, that's really what it is. It has a lot of, um, of, of influence. And um, of course, the ultimate arbiters are the state legislators. They have to then adopt these model acts so that they become effective in any one or more states. Um, and in this case, the, the Travel Insurance Model Act is only in effect in, in six states at this time. Many other states have substantially similar laws in place. Iowa, District of Columbia, New York, and Puerto Rico have no substantially similar laws in place. And the NAIC model law is silent on cancellation for any reason. Therefore, it's not prohibited under the model. So in any of the six states that have adopted the NAIC Travel Insurance Model Act, cancellation for any reason will likely be upheld as enforceable if its validity and coverage is challenged on the basis of an implicit pandemic or epidemic exclusion, either by insurers that issued the policy or by state insurance regulators questioning its validity as insurance. Cancellation for any reason coverage is neither explicitly prohibited nor specifically approved in most states of which I am aware. New York is an interesting case, however. In separate Office of General Counsel opinions, in 2006, and again in 2010, it was stated by the Office of General Counsel of the New York Insurance Department that since every insurable risk requires the element of fortuitousness, and because cancellation for any reason is based on one's own reasons, generally based on fear or other reasons lacking this necessary element of insurable risk, that such policies could not be issued in New York State. At some point, the Travel Guard program, which was initiated by an insurer based, I believe, in Wisconsin, which invented cancellation for any reason of product, was sold to AIG, which marketed it slightly differently as an appendage to a traditional travel insurance policy. Very recently, uh, within the last uh, 30 days, a New York Department of Financial Services circular letter four dated March 6, 2020 showed that New York has now changed its position on this coverage, specifically in light of the coronavirus pandemic. And um, I just wanna read to you what they stated in their preamble. 
The purpose of this circular letter is to clarify for all authorized property casualty insurers and licensed travel insurance producers the position of the Department of Financial Services on cancel or any reason benefits in the travel context and potential coverage for the novel coronavirus under travel insurance policies. In summary, cancellation for any reason benefits may be sold in New York by an insurer if necessary or incidental to its travel insurance business. Non-insurers too may provide uh, CFAR benefits if they are not sold as an insurance product. Further, COVID-19 may be a basis for trip cancellation and interruption under a travel insurance policy. As a result of this change of longstanding New York regulatory interpretation, any licensed property casualty insurer may now sell the cancellation for any reason or CFAR benefits if it can demonstrate that the benefits are necessarily or properly incidental to the kinds of business that the same insurer is authorized to write in New York. And, and the analogy um, is to the line authorized called Inland Marine. So now it's being sold as Inland Marine. In other words, New York's new position is that cancellation for any reason does no longer depend on the existence of a fortuitous risk. And that is a very stunning change of position. And that and that's just in response to the coronavirus. Well, specifically because the the the, um, the the pronouncement was dated March six, just as we were getting started at the height, or or, or really really seeing lots and lots of cases um, diagnosed and and deaths. Right. Um, in addition, the insurer must make cancellation for any reason benefits generally available to consumers in New York and no longer can require the purchase of a standard insurance policy from the insurer. Oh, so they have to, I'm sorry, they have to make that available to consumers in New York because my thought is, well, yes. why would anyone do that now? Well, <laughs> it's, it's a new state, it's a new state policy. Um, uh, and, um, because now this pandemic has really changed the entire um, the, the, the entire universe of what uh, risks need to be accounted for in, in travel insurance policies. Um, this is not the first pandemic and it won't be the last. Um, and if these benefits, CFAR benefits are sold to a consumer who is also purchasing a standard travel insurance policy, um, then these CFAR benefits must be reflected in a standalone contract that is separate from the insurance policy. And so as the market has evolved, and particularly in light of the current um, pandemic, the Department of Financial Services appreciates that cancel for any reason benefits have become a significant part of the travel insurance market. But it's very, very expensive. And, um, uh, you know, the recent circular letter cites the NAIC Travel Insurance Model Act as not specifically prohibiting insurers to sell CFAR benefits while recognizing that they may not be insurance. Uh, 
and insurers must be able to demonstrate that CIFAR benefits are necessarily incidental to being able to provide a full array of consumer protections so long as those benefits are not conditioned on a fortuitous event and are generally available and not dependent on the purchase of a standard insurance policy from the insurer. I have a question just um, about the fortuitous event. Can, what's an, what's a, uh, the, an obvious example or the most common example of a fortuitous event? Well, um, a fortuitous event could be uh, a, a, um, a, a shutdown of the, um, of the transit system causing, causing um, uh, economic damages to um, various um, industries when it's, when it's a prolonged shutdown, such as in the event of a transit union strike. That would be a fortuitous event. Okay. But there are any one of a number of different fortuitous events, and um, it, it was often often viewed that when someone takes a trip, um, there um, they are they, there are many different um, uh, events that could affect the trip. Tr trip insurance uh, covers you know lost baggage and and, uh, and and illness during travel any one of a number of different events, but this was not something that could be foreseen. And um, in, a tr in, the tr in the traditional travel insurance trip cancellation uh, view of things, uh, this was not something that would be covered. But now that cancel for any reason is going to be more available and I can assure you much more expensive um, uh, people are going to have to decide whether they want to purchase it. It's so rare that you have a pandemic like the one we're seeing now, but obviously we've, we've seen several of them in the past um, you know, 10, 15 years uh, so that trip cancellation and cancellation for any reason is going to become much more popular, but try to buy such coverage today and see if anyone is offering it and at what cost going forward. Right. Have you seen any trends in terms of cost? Yes. And that is, that is reflected in one of the, um, one of the handouts, um, which I um, had, had submitted. Um, and, and you could go online now and um, just, uh, you know, Google, um, cancellation for any reason for any reason coverage and come up with a whole list of companies offering them and price it out you know fill in the blanks for the various um, particulars of your trip and you'll see that um, they're getting much more expensive and will only con the premiums will only continue to rise as a result of this particular pandemic and that's it okay thank you so much so when the event sponsor or promoter cancels, there are a slew of contracts that are affected. For example, the venue, the caterer, audiovisual, talent. Cancellation clauses in some of these contracts are very onerous, especially when thir within 30 days of an event. Force majeure clauses may offer an out, but I think by now it's difficult to argue that we are not experiencing a force majeure event. 
Um, the language, though, can be a bit tricky, and your vendors might push back. So, Anthony, what kind of insurance coverage could an organizer look to? So, generally, an organizer can look to event cancellation insurance, which the name really kind of speaks for itself. It's coverage there to uh, help event planners mitigate their losses if the event that they were hosting was canceled. Uh, as a general overview, event cancellation basically provides coverage uh, for losses arising due to the cancellation or sort of interruption or postponement uh, of an event that you have bought that insurance for, as long as the source of the cancellation is covered under the policy. Uh, now, these policies are generally written on an all-risk or all-cause basis so that they will cover any unexpected cause that's not expressly excluded under the policy. Uh, there are also certain policies that are very specific. So they can be, you know, a weather cancellation policy only uh, and other things aren't covered out of there. Um, one thing to note is that as to be expected, because all events tend to be different, this type of coverage is generally event specific. So there may be some commonality in, in, in terms and provisions across different policies. Uh, you often see, though, that these are sort of manuscript policies. And just to clarify, when I use the term manuscript policy, basically, generally the insurance policies that most people see are forms generated by ISO, which is the insurance something that starts with an S office. Uh, they're pretty much forms that the insurance industry has agreed on that uh, will, you will stand we see in, in, in insurance policies, you know, regardless of the type of coverage, they're just standard forms that are used. Uh, manuscript policies are more, you know, when the policyholder and the insurance company sit down because the policyholder has very specific needs and they work out the terms of the actual policy as opposed to using uh, sort of just a pre-generated form. It's a, it sounds like the, the devil is in the exclusions. Uh, yeah, as with any policy, uh, <laughs> the, the devil is, well, actually, you know, a piece of advice always uh, that was given to me as an insurance recovery attorney is to read the entire policy uh, because it's not only just the exclusions, it's the coverage grants as well. But in this instance here uh, for COVID-19, uh, the devil is going to be in the details of the exclusions. Generally, uh, these policies sort of exclude things like weak sales or if people just weren't interested in your event. Uh, it also could exclude things such as communicable diseases. Uh, now, the caveat to that is that you have to look to the terms of the policies. Some policies, for example, might be broad, might broadly be broadly worded as saying, you know, this policy won't cover any losses, you know, or if your event is canceled due to, you know, something related to a communicable disease. Or it could be as narrow as something uh, related to a very specific disease, such as SARS or uh, Legionnaire's disease or something like that. So um, this is, this is, the, a, sorry, this is a silly question, but, you know, would someone want to make a distinction or try to make a distinction between a communicable disease and an infectious disease? Sure. 
if that was the difference between getting coverage and not getting coverage, absolutely. Right. Or on the flip side, if that was the difference between an insurance company having to pay millions of dollars in coverage or getting out of paying in coverage all the same, absolutely they will make that dis- that distinction. Okay. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to very specific wording. Absolutely. And even, so for instance, like a perfect example is some policies may, cover, may exclude coverage for pandemics. Okay. Well, we are in a pandemic now, but if you look at the policy, pandemic may be defined as when the World Health Organization declares an actual pandemic. But that didn't happen right away with this. So if, for instance, you file a claim before that declaration by the World Health Organization, you have an argument that says, no, you haven't triggered that exclusion even though today it would fall under that. Right. And even would there be a distinction between an epidemic and a pandemic? If, if the terms of the policy put that in there. Uh, and so and just a general sort of policy interpretation thing, like first and foremost, uh, courts, courts in New York will look to the terms of the policy. So if, and they said pandemic, but left out the term epidemic. Uh, and the term epidemic could have been put in the policy by the uh, either party, uh, as I said, but these generally being agreed upon between the parties. Uh, you know, the court might not uh, read the word epidemic in there. They would take the position that the parties, if they wanted to exclude an epidemic versus a pan, uh, leave coverage for a pandemic in, they were participants in drafting the policy and therefore that's what they intend. So in terms of COVID specific, you know, right. So policies being written now will definitely say COVID coronavirus, anything of the sort specific. Uh, and, and, you know, just, you know, I'm, obviously I'm not, uh, not a broker, but I keep an ear to the market. And, you know, the thing that we're finding is that, yes, going forward uh, with the pandemic, I'm like, you, it will, you will be hard pressed to find uh, policies that don't exclude uh, coverage for pandemics or specifically the coronavirus. Or if you are able to get them, it will be at a very high uh, premium. Prior to this, if you, for instance, had an event that was planned, you know, to take place uh, this year that you bought a policy for a couple of years ago, which is not unreasonable. I mean, with events like the Olympics, uh, you usually want to have the insurance in place well as you, in the start. Uh, you know, the exclusion uh, most likely wouldn't, that specific coronavirus exclusion will definitely not be there. Uh, and you may find that, you know, even pandemic exclusions or communicable disease exclusion may not be there. You just have to look at the terms of the policy. So the short answer is yes, going forward, uh, policyholders will find it or event planners will find it hard to get policies, uh, that are not, uh, a little bit more expensive in terms of this type of coverage policyholders holding policies prior to now, uh, depending on the terms of their policies may find that this isn't COVID-19 isn't excluded. I would I would imagine there's going to be some flurry of litigation over policies that were written before the pandemic about whether the the pandemic is excluded or covered. Yes. 
I, the short answer is yes. <laughs> and it, it, the broader answer is yes, there is going to be uh, a lot of litigation over literally every insurance policy that may possibly be touched upon to respond to any losses due to COVID-19. Uh, you know, everyone is facing a lot of losses, which is, again, why I will always come back to check the terms of your policy uh, and do not necessarily accept anyone's word uh, that you're, you're not covered for something. Uh, each case and each policy tends to uh, be different, uh, even, you know, and they can differ between company to company. One company might write their policy one way that will provide coverage. Another company might write it a way that doesn't provide coverage. You just have to look at the terms of your policy. Yeah, it's, it just seems to me like an, an impossible task to either think of everything that could possibly happen um, that's that's not excluded, right? So what we just said, if if the word well, pandemic is there, but epidemic is not, well, you could have you could have said epidemic, but you didn't. So so here's a, here's here's a catch with that is that if you remember what I said when I first started uh, my section is that generally these things are covered on an all risk basis. So you know what that basically means is that you don't have to think uh, is that. Unless the policy specifically says that it is excluded, then it should be covered. That's okay. what all risk coverage means. Okay, that, that makes sense. All right, anything, anything else? Any more on uh, event cancellation? No, uh, the only thing I will say, though, is, you know, it, it, once again, you know, if, if there's any takeaway from this, you know, policyholders holding event cancellation policies that they feel that they feel are going to be triggered uh, or are triggered. You know, I always encourage you to give notice as soon as you figure out that there's a potential for a problem. Uh, Give it early, give it often. Uh, And if you have any questions about your coverage, seek help, seek help from a policyholder insurance, seek help from your broker. Uh, But, you know, Coming from again, coming from the policy of the representing side, uh, you bought this insurance for a reason. Uh, if COVID nineteen is that reason, it happens to be that reason, then you pay for this insurance. You do it, you owe to yourself to do everything that you can to seek to get the coverage that you paid for. All right, thank you, Alan and Gary. For vendors faced with dozens, if not hundreds, of cancellations, what types of policies could they look to? Well, I think I think Lindsay the. The better question is is really um, uh, if you if you consider a, a business which has got either uh, customers or ongoing events um, such as be open and they wouldn't necessarily have events they would have business going on that would be interrupted by the coronavirus pandemic. So it's not so much events as the business itself. And right. So like, like, like a venue, like a, a restaurant, for correct. example. Correct. And the, uh, again, uh, there's business interruption insurance, which is sold as a uh, extension or additional coverage under the common uh, business operations policy, BOP, 
policy. And uh, I think Gary, you can you can describe what what that coverage uh, does, I guess. Yeah. So so the business interruption is the one that um, a lot of people have been talking about uh, because businesses have been interrupted in the way that that word is normally understood and common usage. Uh, but uh, the, the the main issue here is that in order for for there to be coverage under the policy, there has to be actual physical loss or property damage. That's a threshold requirement. And so if you take a look at an example, like um, the, the major professional sports leagues uh, are in hiatus now and may cancel their entire seasons. So you look at a stadium that is sitting empty where there'd be NHL or NBA games right now. Uh, there isn't um, uh, arguably any physical property damage to the arenas. They're, they're completely sound and habitable. The reason that the games aren't taking place has nothing to do with um, physical damage to the property. And so uh, you, th- that, that is, is kind of the threshold burden to um, obtain coverage under a business interruption policy, notwithstanding the, the name that people have been uh, throwing around. Uh, I, do, I think the name, the name is confusing. Um, so, so a typical business interruption scenario would be that there was a fire at the stadium and the stadium can, can't hold events there because of the damage from the fire. Exactly. Uh, or some sort of natural disaster or a hurricane Earth, blows earthquake, down at right. the roof. Yeah, right. So that's, um, that's what it, um, it's typically meant to cover. And there's also something related to that product called contingent business interruption, which is uh, coverage uh, to, uh, to a business due to um, disruption caused to its suppliers or customers. So again, if you have, for example, the hurricane scenario or a wildfire or something, uh, and uh, the... Uh, suppliers' businesses have been damaged and they can't deliver the goods to to your business, you might be able to recover uh, on that policy. But that that coverage also has the physical loss uh, requirement. So uh, you you have the same problem there as well. And there's a third um, sibling in this family, which is um, civil uh, authority coverage. And I think Alan uh, was going to speak uh, to that uh, a little bit. Yes. Um, the, this authority uh, coverage, as you, as you mentioned, is part of the contingent uh, business interruption or contingent BI. And I call that a, uh, a coverage extension. It's not really uh, a car- independent coverage itself, it follows on the property co- coverage, uh, which is dependent on a physical damage. So the reason I call it evolved uh, is that in the modern commercial version of the product, uh, economic loss can flow even when the insurance premises are not physically damaged or when they're no longer f- physically damaged. When the loss occurs to a dependent property, as that's defined, usually that's um, situation with a magnet, a magnet shopping center with a with one uh, kind of a 
master store and a bunch of uh, smaller stores on which it's dependent. And, um, or when the property is rendered unuseful by civil authority shutdown, or as you mentioned, uh, even when there's a uh, casualty in some remote part of the globe, which uh, that's the contingency that triggers the policy on what I call the supply chain uh, coverage. So there, those are the examples of where you have coverage without actual physical damage to the insured's premises, um, but you have some sort of covered loss or physical damage off premises on which the insured's uh, business relies and therefore it's covered. Um, in, in denying these claims, uh, which as I say, because they're, because they all uh, depend on a covered cause of loss in order for the extension to be given. Um, be, because that is, 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 is in there, um, uh, the, the, co the coverage will most likely uh, be denied and the civil authority coverage under the policy will be denied. Um, I'll read you from a recent denial. The coverage covers uh, civil authority coverage is where the civil authority prohibits access to the described premises. In other words, you can't just uh, you can't just close your business because the civil authority has suggested you close your business. They actually have to uh, they have to close it down. And that's and that's typical. Uh, that would that would not be an element that would be difficult to show in areas um, where, um, where there has been an order from the, the municipal authority. Um, it would, however, be difficult if the insured decides on its own to shut down prior to the order. So, Alan, I have a, I have a question about this civil authority shutdown. Is the order, and I don't even know if it's technically an order that's in place in New York City, um, shelter in place, um, only certain businesses are allowed to be open right now. Is, does that qualify as civil authority? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and again, that that would necessarily trigger the coverage. It just it just triggers the the denial on another ground. <laughs> so okay. in the the second part of the of the of the coverage uh, describes you know the various. Um, the various um, scenarios where it would cover. The prohibited access to the described premises must be in response to a dangerous condition, uh, dangerous physical condition resulting from an off-premises damaged property or the continuation of a covered loss that caused that damage or to enable civil authority to have unimpeded access to that damaged property. And so in, in denying it, the carrier says, the civil authority order that is affecting your business was not issued due to damaged property off premises. Rather, the order was issued to slow the spread of COVID-19. So that is the basis for denial of these claims. There's other bases as well. I mean, the other bases are just obvious. They just say, well, because there's no damaged property anywhere, your property or the, or the um, 
contingent property, um, there's no coverage. Um, there's a coverage zone in, in that, that applies to uh, wildfires and hurricanes. It's 100 miles typically is the is the is the physical region where the contingent um, uh, business interruption would would cover uh, if there was a civil authority that was preventing your access or your use of your property um, during the period of restoration. So um, very important, um, uh, again, to, to, to mention that uh, physical damage is the key to all of these coverages. Without physical damage, uh, there is no, uh, there is no, um, uh, coverage. And, right. and, uh, and furthermore, I'm not sure if Gary, Gary, uh, not only is a physical damage, but there's also existing out there in the world, um, these, um, uh, virus ex specific virus exclusion. Yeah. Which, I was going to, I was going to talk about that for, so, so, so if you, if you, once you get through the uh, this threshold question of physical damage, which applies to to all the coverages we've been talking about under the business interruption um, heading. Uh, many policies now uh, contain an exclusion for uh, viruses uh, or contagious diseases. And that was put into the policies uh, as a result of the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003, uh, specifically to deal with, um, with with the sort of problem we're having now. So even if you could, um, you know, there's been a lot written about this physical damage issue, uh, which which is a very real hurdle to coverage here. But even if you could overcome that hurdle, then you have, I think, an even bigger problem with the exclusion. Uh, that's contained in the policies. And uh, I, I wanted to mention that over the last week or so, there have been a handful of complaints filed around the country flowing from this COVID-19 crisis. Uh, the first one was a res restaurant uh, in um, Louisiana. Uh, then there was, uh, there was some Indian casinos in Oklahoma, California, Illinois, I think I might be missing one or two that have been filed in the last 48 hours. And in none of those have I seen the complaint mention um, that those policies included the uh, exclusion. So in other words, th those claims are, are being alleged, those coverage claims are being alleged on those few policies that are out there without the exclusion. But there, there's um, a boatload of policies with uh, the virus exclusion. What do you think are the, the chances of um, overcoming this physical damage requirement by saying that the, the, the virus, it's, it, it adheres to the surfaces and damages the, the, the interiors of the restaurant, the countertops? Right. That, that, that's um, the argument that, uh, is, um, that the uh, uh, policyholder lawyers have been making in um, the, tr the trade press. Uh, that's the argument that's suggested in the, uh, I believe, the first the Louisiana complaint and the California complaint. 
that the virus uh, adheres, as you say, to the surface and, and therefore the property is damaged. But as we know from what we're reading now, it doesn't stay there forever. If you just leave the restaurant empty for 30 days, you can come back and use it. Uh, it it's not like mold or asbestos or something that has to be remediated afterwards. Um, is but, there a time it, frame for, for the business interruption? Is it like only after X number of days that you could make that claim? Well, no, I think you could make... Alan, yeah. did you want to jump in on that? <laughs> Well, that's a, yeah, there's a whole, it's a whole uh, another uh, issue, really. But the 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 time, uh, forgetting about the notice of the claim, but the the actual uh, claim itself, in other words, the damages that flow from it, flow from the casualty event. So, unlike the property ca- uh, coverage, which is is you know the the uh, limit is expressed in dollars for the damage to the property. The BI limits and deductibles are are expressed in time, uh, so you typically have a 72-hour deductible and a 180-day maximum coverage, and so you get the first the first three uh, three days uh, are not covered, and the next six months uh, are covered on a sort of a daily basis of. Um, depending on an elaborate worksheet that you put together with your underwriter to uh, quantify the, uh, the, the day-to-day uh, interruption of your activities until you get uh, back on your feet again. So uh, if, the pro- if the property is restored to service within the 180 days, which we would say it is, right? If it's been touched by the virus, um, the virus get, becomes inert um, after it's after it's damaged. It's almost uh, repaired right away. Um, but we've heard uh, anecdotal stories about the virus uh, lingering attached um, to the fomite. Uh, the fomite is, of course, the surface of the um, property that's owned in the in the insured's. Uh, establishment or, or or boat in the case of uh, the cruise ship, right? Um, so it, uh, apparently they found uh, active coronavirus uh, 14 days after the uh, the uh, ship was evacuated. So um, the the damage period can be uh, uh, long, and the risk of damage, um, especially due to temperature variations, apparently. The virus lasts longer in cold weather and uh, does not do it so well in in hot weather. And the fomite uh, to which it attaches, whether it's cardboard or uh, copper, um, can last uh, a long time or a very short time, depending on what it lands on. So the time period is very interesting for the damage. I would say a little uh, damage for even a minute is damage. Um, but the question is the restoration period. Um, when is when is the property back in service? Well, it's back in service right away, except for the civil authority that says, well, we don't care whether it's whether it's um, uh, damaged or not. Um, we won't let you go back there because it might be damaged or because doing so would pose a threat to uh, to uh, the population. 
In any of these instances where, you know, this cruise ship or restaurant or whatever is claiming that there is damage because the, the virus is attaching to surfaces, have they been, you know, have they done the cleaning that would be, you, you would think would be required to disinfect um, these areas and they're finding that there's still virus lingering even after a, a, like a commercial grade disinfectant? Well, I don't know. I have, I've, I've, go ahead, Gary. You have a thought about that? I have not seen that. I, I've been monitoring the complaints that have been filed. I'm sure um, there'll be so many of them that I won't be able to monitor them soon. But since there have only been about half dozen or so, uh, I have not seen that allegation yet. And I think that's probably kind of early days. We, we might see that later on, but I For have sure. not seen that so far. Yeah. So, so, so the, 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 the thought is that, um, it, that remediation is, 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 is twofold. It's actual physical getting rid of the stuff um, that we do with pollution claims and uh, asbestos claims and things like that. But it's also testing to make sure that there's no, te there's no re residual uh, damage uh, that can cause a physical harm to, to humans. So this, this whole thing, I would see, would, would clearly be interpreted by the courts to be, that's the period of restoration. You're, you're not restored to, your business is not restored to where it was uh, until all of that is done. And, uh, and so the, the, the modern commercial form would, would, um, would cover that. I mean, that's it. but for the exclusions and limitations, um, the BI coverage is is perfect coverage for this type of risk, especially for um, small to medium sized businesses and nonprofit uh, insurers. Um, it's not so good for the larger insureds uh, and the multinational corporations which also have this contingent BI coverage, which, um, which uh, applies theoretically to their supply chain and the supply of pharmaceutical ingredients from China and so forth. Um, so because of that part of the business interruption industry, the uh, carriers have declared uh, through the brokers and so forth, that the total BI loss due to the coronavirus um, uh, is 388 billion per month globally. And so uh, for that reason, um, the, uh, the uh, risk is, is, is un, uh, uninsurable um, and it would, it would essentially bankrupt the insurance industry, and moreover, they say um, we need this money to pre prepare for the next hurricane season, which is coming up uh, next fall. So um, that's that's the whole sort of global view of this product. But from the legislation that we have seen or will be seeing. Um, and I think we should move to that. Um, the legislation's not directed to that piece of that segment of the industry. 
the legislation is uh, limited to smaller insurance losses um, that don't rely on anybody but themselves and the foot traffic uh, that goes through their establishments, um, their own establishments uh, for coverage. And this is where the emergency bills, I think, make a whole lot of sense. So wait, so can I, we just, I'm sorry, mind, just, I'll, I'll, I was just going to ask you to, um, uh, to explain what legislation you're talking about. Sure. Well, um, as, as I mentioned, uh, there's legislation all around the country. And uh, to, tell, to be honest, um, I, haven't, um, I haven't looked at the particular bills uh, and the focus that they have in uh, nationally. Um, I know that nationally, there, there could be some bills out there that say, this is a business interruption, you know, pay it. Right, regardless um, of, of exclusions? Correct, yeah. And I think that that is, uh, those, will, those bills will go nowhere. Um, and so, but and I don't know exactly where they are. As you say, they're Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, around the country. New Jersey. Um, New Jersey, yeah. The bill that I like is Assembly Act uh, 10.226, which has been introduced by a uh, member of the Ser uh, by uh, Assemblyman Carroll. And it is uh, entitled an act in relation to requiring certain perils be covered under the BI interruption insurance during the coronavirus disease 2019. The bill is relative mercifully short. Um, I could say, um, the, the key features of it, again, I, I, I told you earlier that BI coverage is time coverage, right? right. Um, and so the, the, key, the key aspect is it sets the time, it sets the beginning of the emergency to March 7. So it backdates, it backdates the, uh, the claim for those who were late filing, doesn't matter because their injury under this bill would start on March 7th. And it would continue, quote, under the, under the language of the uh, statute, proposed statute, during the period of declared state emergency due to the coronavirus disease. Okay, so throughout that whole period of state emergency, and I would, I would add, and maybe it would be better to tailor it a little bit by saying, state emergency and any municipal emergency. Uh, so as the state may lift the emergency in various regions, it would seem as though the bill would make sense to keep applying, for instance, down in, you know, in New York City uh, when it might have been relieved in Albany or, or Buffalo. But um, so what I think is great about the bill is that it avoids the issue of whether there was a business interruption caused by a property loss. Um, it, uh, it holds the insured harmless. And the concept is that the BI coverages are widely enforced, have been purchased. So this bill applies to people who have this coverage. If you don't have this coverage or you have more than 100 employees, this bill is not for you. All right. So it's for um, businesses with less than 100 employees. Correct. Okay. 
Um, and that's what that's the emergency sort of nature of it. That's why that that gets so it. Takes Lindsay, us, I have a I, yeah. I, I have a different perspective on this. I mean, I, I think a bill that that basically uh, essentially rewrites contracts um, is going to run um, headlong into constitutional challenge and and probably won't survive uh, on that basis alone there are other, there's other legislation that's that's even broader that tries to cram coverage that insurers didn't provide didn't um, reserve money for didn't reinsure for um, and and it essentially just um, allocates all the risk to the insurance industry, uh, which which then um, deprives the same policyholders and other policyholders of the protections that they thought they might have for other risks. I think a better proposal is uh, contained in a letter um, dated I think March 30th that three dozen trade groups. Uh, both policyholder and insurer wrote to the president and congressional leaders urging them to set up a uh, federal uh, fund to, uh, to, to deal with this. It's similar to the one that was set up after 9-11, which was quite effective. And it was a public-private partnership where the, um, it was a pay-as-you-go fund so the government allocated money as needed, uh, and uh, the insurers handled the claims, and and the the risk was um, the, the the cost was spread across all industry rather than being uh, foisted onto a single industry, and hopefully um, th- there will be a more global solution um, th- rather than sort of piecemeal by states. Well, I mean, it sounds like it could bankrupt the industry. There's just not, there's just not enough money to cover all of these claims. There, there might not be, and you see you see this with other disasters or other rolling huge disasters, like for example, asbestos, which is um, uh, has been an ongoing. Um, there's a whole litigation industry devoted to asbestos alone, and um, there have been major insurers that have been bankrupted because of that, like. Um, uh, uh, Kemper Insurance, for example, um, they they went under because of their um, asbestos liabilities, uh, and there there are others, home insurance companies, and, and you could name many others. Uh, so so uh, an approach that's sort of thought out uh, and that worked uh, not not too long ago might be a, be- a better way to go. And also, is you know now that this this CARES Act has passed. And there's going to be access to these SBA loans for a lot of businesses with less than 500 employees. Maybe the business insurance legislation, sorry, business interruption legislation is not necessary. Um, I, I, think, I, probably, I think it might be. I think it I think it might be still, and, and they, they don't, um, they, they actually complement each other rather than work in conflict with each other because you could offset uh, whatever recovery you're entitled to under the business interruption um, a fund, so to speak. I don't know what it's going to be called, mm-hmm. with whatever you're going to get from the, um, from the CARES Act uh, loans. And also the other thing that, that you're cutting off, it might not be so great for all the participants on in this podcast who are lawyers, 
is that you're actually going to cut off a lot of litigation. Um, if you, if you set up a fund like this, you won't have all of these, um, underlying claims and coverage claims, uh, being litigated, clogging up the courts and costing, um, everybody a lot of money. Right. And, you know, I was, I was thinking this, these two restaurants who are, have hired, it looks like there's a, they have a common attorney, the one in California and the one in Louisiana. Is this like, is this a contingency payment situation for him? I mean, you know, the, the, the cost to litigate something like this, when you're saying you have, you, you have no revenue from your business, um, I, I don't see how you I don't see how you cover the cost of that litigation. This is the indefatigable plaintiff's bar <laughs> that has been around since the tobacco cases. So they see they see something that uh, they can uh, uh, grasp and go go national with. They come out of hiding and uh, and go go for it. Um, I think yeah, they're very industrious. It, it was smart to get to be the first one out there too. I mean, this guy from Louisiana is his lawsuit was covered in all the industry press and I think in the mainstream press as well. Yeah. And after that Louisiana suit, he picked up a celebrity client. The California restaurant is, I think, a Mark Keller restaurant. Um, yeah. You know, celebrity chef out in Yonville. Uh, so. Um, even if he doesn't make a cent from, from those lawsuits, he, he got some good PR out of it, this lawyer. Yeah, well, um, the, the, the notion that I have is that, um, you know, unlike the, the terrorist activity, you know, we had, we had, when we had TRIA, I mean, what you're suggesting is that the better legislation is like TRIA, where the, the government comes in, the carriers administrate and the, and the government pays um, what the carriers just front. They don't, they don't become the actual payer. They become fronting for the, for the government. It's not, it's not really insurance. It's, it's really a government uh, bailout, if you will, or funding. Um, the thing that I liked about, about the New York bill, and again, it hasn't, it, I don't know if it has a Senate sponsor yet, it was only proposed on the 27th. The thing I like about it is it's tailored to the situation we're in right now, where we have uh, a real um, dip in the economy and, and, and it's most harmful to the most vulnerable businesses uh, that are insured with these policies. And so ultimately, if, if legislate, I mean, the, you, know, you could arguably say, what do you need? What do you need uh, the carrier uh, uh, a carrier response if CARES does everything that the carriers would do anyway, um, uh, or or the state? But um, the thing that's good about this uh, legislation is it has an anti fraud uh, anti fraud provision in it, um, which basically kicks out. Um, you know, anyone who tries to make a claim uh, under it that's not, that shouldn't be. Uh, insurers are very good for doing that. They're going to identify the people who are going to benefit from this uh, legislation. And so, I mean, I, I'm with you on the notion that it is uh, unconstitutional. Um, it's definitely an abridgment of the contract. Um, I haven't looked at too many of these, but the one 
legislation that that uh, the, that says that the the insurance policy shall be construed to include cover in favor of the policyholder. The shall include, uh, if they just wanted to add the coverage, they would say it shall include the coverage. Instead, they say it shall be construed to conclude, include the coverage. So what that's doing is it's legislatively deciding all those DJs with one sweep, sweep of the hand. It's saying you have a ambiguous coverage, or at least arguably so, that arguably could apply to property damage. You have insureds who can't wait for the outcome of that legal dispute. They need the money now. So we're going we're gonna to decide that dispute um, in favor of the policyholder, in favor of coverage. And it's, it's, an, it's an abrogation of um, you know, the constitutional um, Article One contract clause, for sure, but it's done under the emergency powers that all the states uh, have, and um, uh, Governor Cuomo has the same way uh, his, uh, his colleagues in the other states have. Um, You're just looking the, to the insurance you know, industry to, subsi to, to um, subsidize these losses. I mean, you could just as easily turn to the banks and say, hey, you have a lot of money. Why don't you bail out small businesses? Right. I, 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 don't know the, I don't know where they were the two to, to argue it, it but um, the, 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 what my, my proposition is that it's, it's short duration. It's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a particular segment of the, of the industry, the small businesses with employees under 100 in the state of New York, so what 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 that is supposed to do is tell the uh, tell the governor the 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 industry is saying this is a three hundred billion dollar loss. It's not. You put that that in couple couple billion uh, um, a month, not three hundred eighty eight billion a month. And it's more than enough. It's it's more than uh, uh, affordable um, by the carriers that write the business. And if if any of you carriers are listening to this, um, you know I worked for you for many years. Uh, my pension is <laughs> is funded by one of you. Um, so I I know uh, I know that this sounds anathema to you that I'm saying this, but in this is a, an exception to the, uh, the sort of the well-stated rule that you can't under you can't pay what you can't underwrite, and you can't uh, you can't underwrite what you can't price. So th this can't this couldn't be priced before. So therefore, it couldn't be written, and therefore, it can't be paid. I think the paradigm is going to change. It's it's gonna it's gonna be written. It's gonna be written on a, a limited basis, but it will be written. So this this bill and maybe others like it, I, I submit, are um, are fairly well thought out uh, from the standpoint of again a short duration uh, uh, emergency type situation. And the bill that you're suggesting, Gary is totally uh, adequate when we get past this crisis and, and think about um, 
you know, the next, the next uh, cycle and the, you know, the economy um, post uh, COVID-19. So well, it sounds Lindsay, like you can see that this uh, raises a lot of interesting yes, issues that we're yes. not going to be able to resolve this afternoon. No, that's like that's for the the second uh, episode in this series. So it sounds like there's there's three areas to watch with business interruption. There's these um, bills in the state legislatures. Um, there's this property damage litigation. And then the possibility of having a, a TRIA type fund at the federal level. Did I, did I sum that up correctly? Yes, I would add a fourth or a, a, a sub issue to uh, the property damages uh, for the policyholders out there. Take a look at whether you have a, one of the policies with the virus exclusion or not, or, or have your broker or somebody help you with that. Right, right. Always, always read the policy. Yeah, I, I, Always. I, yeah, I totally agree. If the, we haven't seen anybody try to take a run at that, there really is, is no, no way to do it. It's only the policies that don't have the exclusion um, that uh, may, be, um, may, may find some relief um, with these declaratory judgment actions. Okay. And on the civil authority um, uh, part of it, uh, you also have to read the actual order or whatever whatever the form of the civil authority is to see what it act what it says what it prohibits or, or mandates doing and I, I would just say um, that I think we said it already but um, we can put in the package of materials uh, it should be there um, the the case of Gregory packaging versus travelers um, which is 2014 US District Lexus 165232 uh, from 2014. It, it construes the direct physical loss um, to covered property uh, exclusion in favor of uh, physical loss. Um, and the, the, the substance there was ammonia gas. Anyway, that's, that's one of the handful of cases that's going to be cited by the courts uh, and these DJs as you know, pro-insured um, again, so it will be the there are cases going that's a New Jersey case I believe there are cases going the other way too oh for sure yeah so yeah and that'll be that'll be um, there, there, there will be a link um, wherever this uh, podcast is available with um, all the materials that the participants have provided to download so that'll be part of the packet Right. And uh, again, <laughs> um, the, the case that I was thinking about uh, adding to that, I think um, should be also is roundabout. So when I, um, the roundabout theater case is uh, important um, there, um, the appellate division actually reversed, well, it went the other way, <laughs> reversed the uh, district court and said, um, you need physical damage at your, your presence and it's not good enough that the street is closed. You have to be closed um, in order to to claim business interruption. That's roundabout theater. I don't have the site, but we can put it in. Yeah, we can here. add that. All right. So, um, Gary and Janine, what other insurance could come into play to cover losses for a canceled event? 
So it's it doesn't necessarily go to uh, just canceled events, but what, another type of coverage that that um, you might see uh, mentioned here is commercial general liability coverage, which um, in short form is referred to, uh, to as CGL coverage, uh, and it's third party uh, coverage. And here it would be the third uh, party bodily um, injury coverage. So in other words. It's not first-person coverage for the policyholder. It's if somebody sues the business because of injury uh, they uh, received um, as a result of that business. And um, Janine, why, why don't you tell us what, what some of the some of the um, your claims and and um, and facts fact patterns you might see here? Okay, right. So as Gary said, the claims at issue would be. Uh, third-party allegations that the policyholder failed to protect third parties, so customers, patrons, uh, in the face of an avoidable risk uh, resulting from negligence, gross negligence, that sort of claim. And so the claims may be most acute for companies operating in the healthcare and hospitality sectors, nursing homes, hospitals, cruise lines, restaurants, where claimants allege that they contracted the virus at the policyholder's place of business. Uh, CGL policies also often cover a policyholder for personal injury offenses, such as false detention and imprisonment. Uh, so, for instance, cruise lines that quarantine people for weeks may see lawsuits as a result. We saw one uh, case um, regarding Princess Cruise Lines. They have already been sued by a Florida couple claiming the cruise company acted with gross negligence by failing to take precautions to prevent a coronavirus outbreak on one of its ships. And then we foresee negligence suits uh, against nursing facilities and child care facilities where, say, one infected patient in their care gets others sick and the family of the other infected uh, person may sue the facility. Wow. You know, um, I had I'd, I'd thought about... Um, you know, the risks, especially for us as an organization that has events, when you're, especially at the beginning of the, the pandemic, um, I think a lot of organizations were unsure what to do, um, especially with canceling their events. Um, mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and the, the question did arise for me because for, for us, we have, for example, we had a conference um, and it was healthcare providers mostly people in the neuromuscular disease space. So mm-hmm. doctors, um, caregivers, patients, um, uh, people who work in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and ultimately what happened was, especially with the doctors, their, um, their organizations um, told them that, that they could not travel. Mm-hmm. It was too risky because they could go back and they could infect their patients. Um, so I thought about what about what what is the risk of liability, and then not even say for us if we went ahead and we hosted this conference and people came and and they they got sick, but if they were a healthcare provider and they got sick and then they went back and they treated their patients and then their patients got sick. Yeah. So um, you 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 raise um, an important point here, which is that these policies typically cover an occurrence. I'm using quotes around the word occurrence so it's got to be an occurrence during the policy period that's the prerequisite for coverage and um, I expect 
that um, th there will be um, litig litigation here potentially over um, if there are suits like like the one Janine has already picked up, and I'm sure there will be more. Uh, I expect there will be litigation over w what is the occurrence and when it took place, uh, because um, you know somebody who got, gets sick on um, uh, at a cruise ship, for example. Are they getting sick from something, uh, you know, from a surface on the cruise ship, or did they get sick from another passenger who boarded the cruise ship? Uh, and um, uh, I don't know how you answer those questions, or whether we even have the the scientific know-how to get into the uh, those issues. What what is a what's the traditional example of of an occurrence? Uh, well. Uh, uh, Let's say you're talking about um, uh, a company that um, like has a, a gas well uh, explosion, and um, you know it's, it sends up like this this plume of fire and smoke into the neighbor's property and causes um, um, damage there. So that that would be a pretty clear cut occurrence that took place that that uh, should be covered under the policy if they have a, a, a CGL policy, but. Um, uh, you get really complicated, uh, complex questions about this when you deal with um, what are called long tail claims. Those are long to develop injuries, like from asbestos, for example. You could be exposed in year one and not um, suffer any um, illness until year 10. Or uh, um, mold is another example, or environmental um, um, either bodily injury or property damage. And so those cases give rise to, a, there's a huge body of law on when the occurrence takes place there. And there's a lot of science mixed into that law. Mm -hmm. And I suspect we're going to, we might see something like that in this area. And just to, just to add to what uh, Gary said and uh, to answer your question a little bit uh, more, one of the examples that I saw in reviewing uh, similar cases involved Legionnaire's disease uh, and the, the problem here is the claimants will be unable to trace their uh, contraction of the virus to the policyholder's business. Uh, COVID-19 isn't like other alleged occurrences like mold or Legionnaires disease, where the third-party claimant has evidence that they contracted the disease at that business because it's in the HVAC system and you can test for it, or it's in the hot tub and you can test for it, whereas COVID-19 disappears and uh, after you know several days, hours, uh, depending on the service. So there will be proximate cause challenges to tying one's infection to another's conduct. Like you mentioned, Lindsay, it's impossible to say whether you got the, uh, the virus from walking on the street or whether you got the virus by being at uh, that policyholder's business. So the exposure could have happened in umpteen locations. Uh, there will also be duty of care issues. Can I chime in just a little <laughs> bit on that? I think um, it's, if they do write it, uh, it's going to be the same way they would do it in the BI context. If there's an underlying casualty, so in, for instance, in pollution, if you have an explosion and then that causes the pollution, then the pollution is covered. But you're not going to cover the pollution itself absent that ex underlying explosion. So the same thing is going to hold true for, uh, you know, virus coverage and bacteria coverage is going to have some other event that's going to be the occurrence. And this following on, the good example there is fungus. Fungus is covered also. 
So if if but the fu- if the fungus comes from the um, the fire and the cleanup, then it's covered. But it does. But by itself, it's not covered. Does that make sense? So are you saying saying by by itself, COVID is not covered because it doesn't correct. So if you, you can find another, you find another uh, source for it. You know, some sort of negligent act or something that causes the 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 the, the virus. Like you have, I suppose if you have it in a in a vial and then you drop it, you know, something like that. This actually segues into uh, the, the last important point here, which is that there are exclusions on these policies as well. And uh, some of them have specific exclusions for uh, infectious diseases, which is, I think, what Alan was referring to. And uh, others have pollution exclusions. I think most CGL policies now have uh, pollution exclusions. And to the extent there's an argument, there, there could be an argument over whether this is pollution or not, which is could be the topic of another podcast. Uh, but but so there there are these exclusions that that would um, uh, that that would be uh, hotly debated, I think, as to as to whether they apply. Again, the exclusions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So okay. Um... I think that wraps up our discussion then about these specific types of insurance. Um, what are some high-level suggestions, because we're not giving legal advice here, um, but uh, what to do if a, if a client might have a claim? I think uh, one of our earlier speakers who had to drop off, uh, and he's, he's a policyholder side lawyer, uh, he, he gave, the um, I think, the checklist of advice, which is, read your policy or ha- or talk to somebody who understands policies, uh, help, have them help you read your policy. And if you think you have a claim, uh, talk to your carrier uh, or make an, uh, uh, put them on notice. Uh, and, and there's little downside to that here uh, so that you don't lose your notice period. You might be time barred if you wait too long. Right. There's, there's policies usually require you to give notice within a certain period of time and, uh, and try to keep records of what's going on because you're going to have to, if you do have coverage, you're going to have to substantiate it somehow and you're going to have to establish that. So I think those would be very, very important sort of basics. What are some final thoughts on the effect of this pandemic on the industry going forward? This is, this is an earthquake. I think that's, um, uh, that's um, we don't know what the the damage is yet. We don't know if statutes um, uh, force insurers to cover uninsured uh, liabilities. Um, that 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 will uh, upend the insurance industry. Um, if if they don't, and there's no fund, and there's um, a wave of litigation, depending on how that comes out, that will have huge effects on the insurance industry. Uh, one thing I have seen is that um, the creation of sort of risk pools by non-insurance companies uh, where um, the sort of private equity investors were, were um, essentially creating a type of insurance, but just for a specific issue like a pandemic. Um, the, you, there was talk about that after the SARS epidemic. And I think there was a little bit of development of that, uh, not that much. We might see more of it here because I've been reading in the press that unfortunately, once we get through this, there might be a second wave, God forbid. But um, 
that there might be time to set up some sort of risk um, risk allocation pools uh, to deal with that. What does a risk allocation pool look like? Who participates in that? It's set up in self-insurance. It's basically uh, putting a pot of money aside for the rainy day. It's it's uh, it's not it's not really insurance. It's administrating money that you have uh, and you can invest it and so forth. So while you don't have a claim, it can continue to grow. And then you can reinsure it and there may be more appetite in the reinsurance uh, market than there is in the direct primary insurance market. But I, I see I'm a little more optimistic about this. You know, I see this as a opportunity for the insurance industry to come up with some innovative new groups of metrics that are going to be uh, uh, that are going to come away uh, come come from all this data that we're collecting on how the on how the virus is spread you'll have a premises risk from the sticky virus which is going to be some uh, factor of the foot traffic and mobility of clientele and, and employees, and then the fomite surface area. So it's going to be the fomite surface area is going to be the actual property risk. It's how it's how how much virus you or contaminant is are you having, and how many people are exposed to it. That's that's the actual uh, problem there. And so you're going to have the industry that does the most uh, does has the most mobility associated with it is going to be the industry is going to pay the most for it or won't be even insured. And as Gary says, we're going to have to self-insure. But at some segment of the population and in some regions, um, it's going to be insurable. And I think um, by the private industry without, without uh, the need for necessarily uh, these risk pools or these alternative risk vehicles. So I think carriers will be able to write uh, BI insurance on a sublimited basis. It's already sublimited. So the BI coverage is never as large as the uh, CGL or the property coverage to which it attaches. And so on a segment by segment basis, um, retail, um, you know, hotels, uh, those kinds of things, and then different regions, um, it's totally, it seems to me, totally uh, measurable. And um, there's no reason in the world not to write uh, BI risks in Seoul, Korea. Um, the, the problem is, uh, will you be able to write them in New York for a while, uh, seeing as how we've handled this? So, I mean, uh, a sit-down restaurant in lower Manhattan with high mo- mobility, that means you know foot traffic, is going to always be a very tough write in this uh, post-COVID world. Uh, but other other industries that have very little exposure to mobility and fomite uh, uh, will will be totally um, uh, insurable uh, under the direct uh, business insurance. So I you know in in, con- in conclusion um, you know there's a uh, Harvard professor. Uh, uh, Professor Dutch Leonard, who's observed that in a crisis, uh, business leaders need to do what they really already do well. And um, I submit that 
the insurance industry already values individual sector risk exceedingly well, and they are, they are very well uh, positioned, especially to uh, administer emergency economic relief in these business sectors. Um, there's no other business or entity that's better equipped to manage these risks in this small sector. And I'd also like to dedicate uh, this paper to my friends who passed away this week. My, my prayers go out to them and their families. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I have to say I was never, I'm, I'm very much a general practitioner. And so I've never been interested in insurance. Um, I've only thought of it in the context of, oh, you know, I might have to notify my carrier if a kid gets injured at one of our summer camps. And so it's been kind of dreaded or maybe just, uh, you know, we have to issue uh, certificates of insurance, but I will definitely be watching um, the industry to see how this all develops. I, I find it all, it's very, it's fascinating. Let, and, uh, let me just give a pitch to that, yeah. Lindsay. But it's, uh, you know, I, I came into the insurance practice sort of years into my career. Uh, it's, it's really um, contract uh, law on steroids uh, because it's, <laughs> uh, it's got complexities that you don't see in regular contract disputes. The factual uh, um, circumstances are, as we're talking about here, are, are different and completely unexpected from uh, issue to issue. And then as some of our other speakers referred to, I mean, there, there are all these regulatory and statutory and policy issues uh, it, it is it is really a, an intellectually fascinating area, and and it sounds like a lot of the claims are very creative. That that's for sure. That's <laughs> to that's to my brothers and sisters on the plaintiff side. <laughs> they 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 try they try to offer a lot of coverage, and then yet they sort of want to pull back from it all the time. So you. You have a coverage grant in the left hand, and then a coverage exclusion or condition on the right hand, and so it, the, the 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 actual coverage that you get as a practical matter is somewhere in between. Right. Uh, so, but it, but I I'm fascinated by it. I'm also fascinated by risk in general. I mean, it's just it's it's um it, make, it makes you uh, it makes you risk averse, but also allows I mean. There are people doing innovative new things that are really hard to put a value on what their what their risk is. So insurance is one of those one of those industries that like is constantly looking at new uh, new business models and new uh, new emerging risks. And the pandemic risk is one they've been watching for a long time. But unfortunately, it's been pushed aside by the uh, global warming risk, and uh, which is also a risk. Right. But, um, but uh, the pandemic risk uh, was out there, and we hadn't had a pandemic for a hundred years. So now we've got a, we've got. Do we have? It, 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 is the next pandemic a hundred years from now? Will our grandchildren have the next pandemic, or? Uh, uh, or or will it be sooner than that that's what that's what uh underwriters and actuaries are going to have to try to model and uh, the way the same way they try to model uh, t uh tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes uh, 
So anyhow, um, this is the, we live in interesting times. Oh yes. Well, I hope we're better prepared for the next pandemic. Maybe by then we'll have figured it out. Thank you so much for everyone for talking with me about insurance. Thank COVID-19. you. Thank you, Lindsay, for organizing this. My this pleasure. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on iTunes or Google Play or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.